Good morning, everybody. Kathy and I visited with our daughter and son-in-law and Tyler the last couple days. Always wonderful to see a young couple with the stars still in their eyes and everything. Well, they have a couple of dogs as well that uh, each of them brought into the marriage. And one is a Labrador. And uh, we're kind of partial to Labradors because that's like all we've ever had. Uh, trouble is they don't live long. But uh, we had a wonderful visit with our, our daughter-in-law and son-in-law and their dogs. And in fact, when the, one of the dogs, the Labrador, was at the table with us, uh, I don't mean sitting at the table, I mean, you know, <laughs> All around, all around the table, and the Labradors have tails like bull whips, and they're they're so happy all the time. And if you get a Labrador close to a wall, I mean that thing is going to bang on the wall. And and this is what happened. It reminded me of something that happened a few years back, back when I used to commute to work. I drive into Frisco. We live over in Aubrey, so it's a bit of a hike. And I usually would get up uh, before the roosters and uh, get on the road while it was still dark and beat the traffic. And so, you know, Kathy was always still asleep when I would leave. And I was always trying to be quiet, you know, walk around the house like a mole in the dark to just try to be quiet and sensitive to her rest. Well, our dog Carly at the time would uh, sleep in the garage. And so when I would leave through the garage, nice and quiet, I would turn the light on so I can get a you know quick view of everything, make sure I'm not going to step on some bag of fertilizer, and then turn the light off to make my way you know in the dark to the garage door. As soon as I turn the light on, Carly, of course, wakes up, and she thinks it's playtime, you know, here at 5 in the morning. And she comes over to me and says good morning, and of course she's wiggling, and the tail starts. And then it starts whacking the, the, the wall. And behind our wall is the bedroom where Kathy's sleeping. And so I'm trying to get Carly to quit. I've got my arms full of stuff. And she just bang, 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 bang on the wall. And finally, I pull her away from the wall, and i just so angry. It's amazing how fast you can get angry with a dog. Now, don't judge me here on this, okay? And I muttered under my breath, dumb dog. I actually said that to her. Dumb dog. And I was driving off, and I thought, dumb Wayne. (laughs) Carly has no more understanding of what she did. She thought she was just greeting me. She doesn't understand that on the other side of the wall is, is Kathy asleep. And I began to think, you know, not only did Carly not know on the other side of the wall, there's tons of information that she didn't know. She doesn't know how to read a book. She didn't know how to tie her shoe. She, of course, doesn't have the beginning of the concept of music theory or quantum physics. She doesn't understand or didn't understand. She's not with us anymore, but she didn't understand how uh, automobiles work. And yet what she did understand is that automobiles work. And she could jump up and get in this thing and go with us. She has no idea about how auto mechanics work. I don't understand how auto mechanics work. And, but the dog had no concept, and the dog has no ability to have the concept. That's, I guess, the point, is that the, 
that God did not create a dog to understand what you and I understand or that what we can understand. We may not, not all understand quantum physics or music theory, but we are all capable of learning at least some part of it. Dogs aren't. They're on a totally different level. And so for us to expect that of them is unfair. Same thing is true of us and God. God did not create us with all of our brilliance to understand things on his level. The children are doing a choir, a concert about the attributes of God, and it's a wonderful, wonderful concept. The attributes of God, I remember in seminary, one of the first things they taught us was that God's attributes, there's two sets of them really, those that are communicable and those that are incommunicable. And that initially is not very helpful, is it? Until you understand what it means is those attributes that God shares and those attributes that he doesn't share. The attributes that he does share with us are like wisdom, love, things like this. But then there are attributes like omnipresence. How do you share that? This is something unique to God by himself. God is on a level far above us, just like we are on a level far above a dog. The church father, St. Augustine, sometimes in Texas we'll call him St. Augustine and get him confused with the grass, but St. Augustine spent years trying to figure out how to write a book about the Trinity. And uh, one time he was at the beach and he saw this boy dipping water out of the ocean and, and carrying it over into a hole he had made in the sand. And he was taking the water from the ocean and pouring it into the hole and going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And of course, you know, eventually the, the, it just, it just, it's a never-ending thing. It just sinks. And Augustine walked over to him and said, what are you doing? And the boy says, I'm going to put that entire ocean in that hole. <laughs> and Augustine says, that's impossible. And now as the story, I think, gets more into the, the realm of a, a bit of a, a, an apocryphal uh, section to it. But anyway, the, the boy told Augustine, and it's also impossible for you to describe the Trinity in a book. <laughs> oh, how'd you like that to be your son? But anyway, I think about, I think about that time with my dog. The incalculable greatness of God. We are incapable by design to think on the level of God. God's awesomeness, his wisdom, begs us, demands of us that we trust him for those parts of life that we are unable to comprehend, those parts of life that we worry about, which, by the way, is everything. Let's look together at Genesis chapter 46. We are coming toward the tail end of our study on Joseph, which also ends the book of Genesis here in a couple of weeks. We love Joseph's story. Such a great, great story. Uh, because it's so true to life in so many ways. And I think one of the reasons we love Joseph's story is because we identify with it. I mean, we identify uh, of, all, of all people in Joseph's story, I think we identify most with Joseph. I mean, he's the main character. He's the one that we have our eyes on the whole time. But we also, you know, he's kind of the underdog that um, where justice, poetic justice, comes to light. And so we support him. We, we, we cheer him. We're thrilled that uh, finally justice came to Joseph. 
But I think we also identify with Joseph because we identify with his struggle. We see his sorry lot in life a lot like our own. You know, we are like Joseph. We are the sufferers in relationships. We are the victims of unfair treatment. We're the ones who are forgotten, stuck in a prison, as it were, for years. We're the ones who have to forgive other people. We're the victims of life. We're like Joseph. Well, that may be true, but that's not all that's true. We are also like the brothers. And here's where the Joseph story has an uncomfortable turn. We're like the brothers. We need to see ourselves as impulsive, as jealous, as wanting the favor that Joseph got or wanting the favor that other people got. We treat family badly. We make victims. We are control freaks. Our words cut like razors. We make victims. We are not just victims. We are the brothers. So in the reality, when we look at Joseph's story, we identify with Joseph, but we need to also make sure we're identifying with the brothers because it's from the brothers that we learn our own lives as well, how to change. The Joseph story has two sides to the coin. We live as Joseph. We live as the brothers. We need to forgive. We need forgiveness. Joseph's family has come to uh, Egypt from Canaan. And here in chapter 46, toward the end of the chapter, is where we left off. I think we left off verse 31. And this is where we will pick it up again. As Joseph prepares his family to meet Pharaoh. Verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. So Joseph is shrewd. He knows the culture. He knows that if he emphasizes or tells his brothers to emphasize a particular part of their occupation, that they're shepherds, that Pharaoh's going to go, Ooh, you guys are shepherds. That's gross. You go live over there in Goshen and stay away from us, which is going to serve Joseph's family well because it keeps them separate. It, it allows the Hebrews to maintain their own culture and to stay separate from the Egyptians and all their foreign gods and all their immorality. So Joseph is using, he's shrewd, he's using this. He says, when you get it in front of Pharaoh, just say this, because this is true, but this is what you say. And so now it happens. Look down, uh, we won't read the first uh, few verses here of the next chapter, but look down at chapter 47, verse 7. Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. What a statement. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? <laughs> I love that. It's like, how old are you, old man? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers 
and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Jacob, 130 years old, and he must have looked every bit of it, because the first question Pharaoh asks him is, how old are you? And his, his answer is interesting. Literally, he says, few and, he says unpleasant, or it's translated here, unpleasant. The word is literally evil. Few and evil have been the years of my life. And we, we skip the part that says that Joseph selected five of the brothers to join them. Uh, they don't say anything. They're just standing there. But you know the brothers, those five brothers probably hung their heads at that moment because they realized they contributed to that, to making their father feel like his years have been few and evil. But notice also, this the perspective that Jacob has. And I don't want to get too critical here of Jacob because, once again, this story is about us, not just about him. But when our focus is on ourselves, we tend to view life as evil. We tend to view life as unpleasant. Because... You know, a lot of times, if something bad happens in a day, we'll define the whole day by that bad moment. Think about, think about that. You can have a great day, and then one five-minute something happens, and all of a sudden, you define the whole day by that five minutes, when the reality is it could have been a great day, but maybe that one part of it wasn't that great. Or you can take the attitude that Joseph had, and we will see later, especially in chapter 50, where Jacob, uh, Joseph also says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He's not discounting the evil, but he's not focusing on the evil. He's focusing on the fact that God used it for good. So Joseph was able to summarize his life as saying, good, God meant it for good. But here Jacob, in this moment of honesty, but also of narrow perspective, doesn't include the Lord in the, uh, in the conversation, except, interestingly, he blesses Pharaoh. So it's kind of an interesting um, personality Jacob brings to the table here. We read uh, down in verse 11 what we read that says that Goshen was in the land of Ramses. If you were to look at a map of uh, Egypt, you, in the northern part of it, right as the delta begins to fan out and go up into the Mediterranean, that's the area of Goshen. It's just lush. I've been there one time, and it was amazingly lush. Just uh, everything's green. It'd be, I, I would imagine it would be a wonderful place for shepherds and a wonderful place to, uh, to raise a family if you were in back in that day. And this is the place that Joseph handpicked for these 70 people that came down, and the text is going to go on, and of course the book of Exodus is going to go on and say that God blessed them and they multiplied. In fact, they came into Egypt as 70 people, and when they left at the Exodus, it was probably in excess of 2 million over the course of 400 years, 430 years. So that is a busy bunch of people, and God blessed them. God blessed them. Joseph not only provided for his family, uh, but he also provided for Egypt, and uh, before we get into that, though, let me just mention this mention of Ramses. You know, if you see the, uh, the Charlton Heston Exodus Moses movie, uh, the pharaoh there is referred to as Ramses. And so he was not the pharaoh of the Exodus, by the way. It uh, was a different 
different pharaoh altogether. Ramses lived a couple hundred years later in the time of the judges. But um, the pharaoh here under Joseph was a man named Sesostris III. And you can go to Egypt today. In fact, I was there just last month or six weeks ago or so and stood, looked at the pyramid that most likely Joseph built for this pharaoh. It's called the Black Pyramid. It's, uh, it's pretty ruined, ruined, but it's still enough of it sticking up where you can look at it and think, you know what? Joseph was here. It's just kind of cool to stand there and go, you know, Joseph helped build that for this, this pharaoh that, that we read about here in Genesis chapter 47. But the mention of Ramses, though, it's, it's what's called in, um, in history an anachronism. It's a big word. It basically means you use a reference to a later period uh, when you're writing in the current period. Uh, we see this, saw this earlier in Genesis when Moses wrote about Abraham going up and rescuing Lot from the area of Dan. Well, Dan didn't even exist at that time, but it's a reference that the readers would have understood. It's kind of like when we say Columbus discovered America in 1492. No, he didn't. There was no America in 1492. But that helps us, that gives us a reference to the geography. So when it talks about the land of Ramses here, it's not doesn't mean that Ramses was there, but it means it's for the reader. Oh, okay, we know exactly the area you're talking about. It's an anachronism. You use a, a later uh, historical fact to make something current. So Joseph brings his family into Goshen. Uh, we won't read it, but uh, verses 13 all the way through 26 goes on to talk about how Joseph provided also not only for his family but for the whole nation. Now, you, we could read this section, and uh, if we did, we might think, golly, I mean, Joseph made the whole slaves out of the whole nation. No, he saved the whole nation. In fact, this was their perspective uh, when they said at the very end, you have saved our lives. This was their, uh, their summary, as it were, and down in verse 25. They said, you have saved our lives. They understood that if it's live or die, we will happily give up our land so that we can live and our families can live, and that's exactly what happened. But here's a simple principle from the text that we get not only from um, Joseph bringing his people into Goshen, but also Joseph dealing with the nation, and it's this, that we as Christians or as believers should be shrewd with the world so as to benefit God's work. We should be shrewd with the world so as to benefit God's work. We don't know why the Egyptians thought that uh, shepherds were abominations, but uh, you know we'll go with it. If uh, you think we're abominations, we're going to use that to our benefit, and it'll keep us separate, and it'll keep us pure and separate from the um, the Egyptians. I think about this in relation to uh, what our church has done in years past, and I hope we do it again with what was called DSO on the go. You know, Dallas Symphony Orchestra would come and play up here. In, uh, in our church. And I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I'm going to guess that we charge them next to nothing or nothing to do so. And we provide them a meal. We provide meals to all the, uh, to all the musicians. And so it's a great ministry, not only to the symphony, but it also allows us in our accommodating the symphony to provide a, a way for the community who may not ever darken the doors of a church to come, and maybe they're interested in the symphony, and to just at least get a toe in the door to maybe have some interest to come and hear about Jesus Christ. 
in a, in a sim- similar way to what Joseph was doing by principle, being shrewd with the world so as to benefit God's work. That's what Joseph was doing, and that's what we can do. Well, let's move on. Joseph's father and brothers had lived, we just fast forward now, they have lived for 17 years. Look down at verse 28, chapter 47, verse 28. We read, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So this 130-year-old guy, now another 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, that you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. Place your hand under the thigh. That's a euphemism. And uh, basically it means, it's a nice way of saying, place your hand close to my private parts. It's a, it, it's a euphemism, but it basically means take my life in your hands. It means you're swearing. <laughs> you got to be serious about this. And uh, Abraham actually did this as well back in chapter 24. Remember, he asked his servant, Eliezer, he says, look, when you go get a, a wife for my son Isaac, you got to swear that you're, you're going to do it exactly like I said. So this is like a pinky promise, you know, in today's uh, cross your heart, hope to die type of thing. But this is a far more serious vow. Swear to me. And Joseph swore. And what was, what was so important? Jacob said, don't bury me in Egypt. God's going to take you out of the land. And when he takes you out of the land, take me out of the land. Or actually, he says, when I die, bury me there. Uh, Joseph was the one that says, when I die, take me out of the land. Uh, but Jacob says, when I die, don't bury me here. Take me back and bury me uh, in Hebron, in the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham and Isaac are buried. Jacob says, that's where I want to be buried. Why? Why would he want to be buried there? Because that's where God's promises were. He was basically saying, I believe that God's going to bring about his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to me. That God's going to give us the land. And I believe it so much that I want to be buried there. Why? so that I'm resurrected there. That's the significance of it. He knew that God's promises extended beyond the grave, that death doesn't change God's promises at all. And that's a great encouragement to us as well, because we bury people. We bury loved ones. We bury them oftentimes with conversations that we never got to have, with confessions, with resolutions with coming together again in fellowship. Sometimes death separates those conversations. We never get to have them. Think about Peter. Think about Peter. When he had betrayed Christ and the last living moment that he had with his Savior was Jesus turning and looking at him right after he had denied him. And then they hauled Jesus off and crucified him. And Peter's left with nothing but the memory. Imagine that. But then what solved all that? Resurrection. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to Peter, and we're also told in Luke, at the end of Luke, that uh, Jesus 
appeared to Peter personally, one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, we're not sure what they said, but there was a personal reconciliation. Resurrection gives that. And Jacob is saying, don't bury me here, bury me there, because I believe in resurrection. That's what he meant by it all. So this was a serious vow, and he, uh, he makes Joseph swear. Well, chapter 48 is actually the deathbed conversation, or at least it begins. Chapter 49, it continues as well, but we'll look at that next time around. But chapter 48, look at uh, the very first verse. Now it came about after these things, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, or El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that had been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Here we've got the deathbed, or at least the first conversations here on the deathbed of Jacob. And I don't know if you ever had any deathbed conversations, but boy, they get serious, don't they? You just kind of, they just kind of all boil down to what matters. If there's anything left to say, now's your chance to say it. Jacob on his deathbed remembers these things all back. He, he recalls for Joseph the special moments and the tender moments of his life not the least of which is the covenant that God made with him to give him the land, and he reiterates that. He talks about the death of Joseph's mother, Rachel, and how that broke his heart. This is decades ago, and Jacob is still thinking about it. He's still mourning, I guess, in a sense, the, the death of his beloved wife, Rachel, and Joseph's mother. And Jacob tells Joseph that his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, would be Jacob's sons now. So he has elevated them from grandchildren to sons. And in that sense, that they would inherit portions of the land on the level of the other sons. I don't know if you've ever noticed, as you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, but there is no tribe of Joseph. He was one of the 12 sons, yet there's no tribe of Joseph. Why? Because Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were elevated to that position. And now they're the ones that get the tribal allotment. So Joseph, in a sense, gets a double portion, the right of the firstborn. In fact, 
Keep your finger here in Genesis, if you would, and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. I'll give you five minutes to find 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Remember, the firstborn got a double portion. He got a double portion over all his other brothers. 1 Chronicles chapter 5. This is what Jacob gave to Joseph. 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, so he is the true firstborn, for he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Verse 2, though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So there's two different things that get passed on when a patriarch dies. There's the birthright, and there's the blessing. The birthright is basically in the sense of the inheritance, and Joseph got the birthright. He took the place of Reuben, the, first, the true firstborn, and now Joseph the firstborn of the favorite wife, Rachel, gets the the position or the goods, as it were, and the double portion was given to Joseph. And this is why two tribes, not just one, but two tribes are accounted for under Joseph's name. And also verse 2, it says, Judah, from him came the leader. This means ultimately the Messiah. So the blessing is going to pass through the line of Judah, but the birthright we're told in verse 2, belonged to Joseph. So turn back to Genesis 48. And so that puts it a little bit in context. So Ephraim and Manasseh had just been elevated. And now then, which of those two is going to be the actual one in front? Uh, Manasseh was the firstborn of Joseph. And so Joseph assumes that Manasseh is going to have preeminence. And this is Joseph's expectation. But before we get into that, I love verse 11. Just back in Genesis 48, the the tender insight here. I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. All right, can you handle one more turn back? This one isn't, isn't as far. But keep your finger there in Genesis 48 and turn back to Genesis 42. Genesis 42, look at verse 36. This is also a statement that Jacob made. This is when, this was in the the dark days of the famine when he had sent his sons down to Egypt and now the sons came back saying, "Uh, we're in trouble, you know, we, we came back with all this money, we shouldn't have had it, and by the way, they kept Simeon. And so anyway, look at verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children, Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. This is a man who is just looking in the natural. And you can totally understand where he's coming from. If we were in that position, we'd be struggling with it too. I mean, when God allows something tragic to happen, it is really, really tough to be spiritual. We want to get focused in on the natural and to look for natural solutions, immediate solutions, financial solutions, relational solutions. We don't think spiritually. 
We don't think, how is God going to use this in 40 years? We think of the immediate need. And the immediate struggle for Jacob was, it's all against me. But the reality was, no, Jacob, it's all working for you. God is using this difficult time, granted a very difficult time in your life, to bring about some incredible things. So turning back to chapter 48, once again, verse 11, look at Jacob or Israel's perspective now. I never expected to see your face. God has let me see your children. This is what God was cooking back in chapter 42, but Jacob couldn't see it. So, principle, if you haven't already detected that it's coming, is this. Our moments of greatest despair, God can use for great blessing. Our moments of greatest despair, God can use for great blessing. To that marvelous promise that we have in Romans chapter 8, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who were called according to his purpose. We also need to ponder that rhetorical question that follows a few verses later. The question gives us context. If God is for us, who can be against us? The sovereign God of Romans 8.28 gives us this comfort of Romans 8.31. Who can be against us if God is for us? It gives us context to those painful parts of our lives that we need to lean on God's sovereignty and not just look in the natural. In moments of great pain, theology offers us a strong anchor of the soul. We cling to truth when our emotions are swirling around us like a storm. This is why, once again, it's so essential that we have our daily time with God. Because if we let that slip, if we start letting that slip, then we will, we don't have the anchor in our hearts. We don't have the ability to let our minds be renewed with truth. Instead, our minds are molded by our, our emotions, or worse, by the world and the world's theology, as it were, which is terrible. We are not secure in God because we feel like it. We are secure in God because of truth because of the truth of Scripture. Emotions have nothing to do with it. All these things are against me, Jacob said. Nope, just the opposite was true. God was using all these things for him. And it's the same with us. Pain and patience. Think about this. Pain and patience often walk down the road, the road holding hands. Picture that. Pain and patience walking down the road holding hands. They often go in tandem in fact, the word patience comes from a Latin word that means suffering. We get our word long-suffering from that. The idea of being patient is your long-suffering. Pain and patience are holding hands, walking down the road. When we ask God for a solution, it's usually the immediate solution. Jacob, now on his deathbed, had a clearer sight being blind than he did decades earlier when he could see. Old age had deprived Jacob of clear eyesight, but it gave him great vision. Look at verse 12. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close. In other words, Joseph's saying, 
here's the ones that I, here's the, the way I want you to bless them. I want your right hand of blessing to go on Manasseh. Brings him forward. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. Joseph brings his sons for blessing, but Jacob is getting it wrong. He doesn't realize. And Joseph understands my father can't see. He's got it mixed up. He's crossing his arms because he can't see. And so Joseph tells him, nope, this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on him. Give him preeminence. Joseph objected. In spite of his eyesight, though, it's amazing. Jacob saw more in this moment than even Joseph did. Look at verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. We can almost see Jacob here in this verse nodding his head. Remember, Jacob had done a similar thing to his father on his deathbed. Remember old blind Isaac? Jacob came in and tricked his father into blessing him. And now he can't see. He's got Joseph bringing Ephraim and Manasseh. So he's thinking back. He remembers. And so when he says, I know, my son, I know, it's almost like just this years of wisdom of dealing with how God deals with people. And he says, you know what? The younger is going to be the one that's going to have preeminence. It's not going to be the older one. God often acts contrary to what we expect in spite of our manipulation. This is what Jacob learned. Look at verse 22, uh, 20. Verse 20. He blessed him that day and said, <laughs> Put it under your heel and stomp on it, Dean. That's the, that's the best way. All right, verse 20. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I will give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So, once again, one portion more. So you get the, the right of the firstborn. You're getting double. But it's interesting, the word here for portion doesn't just mean portion. It's actually the Hebrew word shechem or shechem. And it means shoulder. That's literally what it means. But it also can mean like a shoulder of land, which is probably why shechem is named shoulder. 
because it's it's a very strategic area. It's got this little shoulder of land. Um, but Shechem is also where Joseph would be buried. So there's all kinds of you know things going on here. You've got uh, the portion, the double portion. You've also got, oh, by the way, I'm giving you the land called Shechem in the area of Ephraim, in the tribe of Ephraim. So there's all these things going on uh, at the same time. I don't know if you saw in the news recently, you probably did, where the traditional site tomb of Joseph in Nablus was desecrated by some Palestinian uh, folk, and the Jews uh, refixed it up. But that Nablus is ancient Shechem. So we don't know if that's truly Jacob's, um, Joseph's tomb, but uh, interesting that here we are in the study of Joseph, and that occurred. Joseph's tomb was desecrated. God knows where he's buried. God knows where he's buried. But you think about this. Joseph, of all people, should have known, or perhaps should have anticipated, that Jacob would cross his arms. I mean, since when has God done it according to conventional wisdom? I mean, God often does this. Think about it. Abraham chose Ishmael, but God chose who? Isaac, right. Isaac chose Esau, but God chose Jacob. Jacob chose Joseph, and then when Joseph was gone, Benjamin. In fact, Benjamin's name means son of my right hand. So here's the one that's getting the blessing. God didn't choose Joseph or Benjamin to get the blessing, but it was Judah, the tribe of Judah. Joseph, of course, chose Manasseh, as we just saw here, but God chose Ephraim. We can go figure it all we want. We are never going to be able to figure out the wisdom of God and the unconventional way that he works in our lives. God often crosses his arms. Has God ever crossed his arms in your life? By that I mean you bring something to the Lord and say, Lord, bless this. God says, "Ah, I'm going to bless that. Lord, this is what I want you to bless. God says, well, this is going to be great, but this is what I'm going to work through. I'm going to work through the way that you least expect. Not because, you know, I'm mean, but because I'm sovereign. And because I choose to work through this way, in a way that I'm going to get the glory, and you're going to come to understand, not how awesome I am because I'm an egotist, but you will come to understand how awesome I am because I am. And anyone would want to know this and have a greater perception of the goodness of God. Just listen as I read from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. This is Hebrews eleven 21. We're told, By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Isn't it amazing how the Spirit of God surveyed 147 of Jacob's years and picked this moment to be the crowning moment of Jacob's faith. That he would bless Ephraim and Manasseh and that he would basically say, I believe in resurrection, that you're going to bury me in a foreign land because I'll be resurrected. The Spirit of God focused on this. Jacob's faith enabled him to see beyond tradition and even to see beyond the grave. We need that same vision. We need it today. So, think about these statements of of, uh, Jacob in your life and Joseph as we've looked today. 
You're going through something right now where God is crossing his arms. He is asking, you are asking him to bless this, but he hasn't doing that. He's going to bless something different. Are you going to submit to a sovereign God? Are you going to keep pushing like like Jacob did all those years till finally on his deathbed he goes, I know, I know, believe me, it's taken me a long time and I finally get it. Don't wait for then. Do it now. Believe in a sovereign God and trust him. And if you're at a place like Jacob where you say all these things are against me, in that brief moment in your time with God each day, push out the noise of the world and look at the truth of the scripture A sovereign God often uses our moments of greatest despair to bring about tremendous blessing. That's what he's doing. And I'm not saying that because I'm hopeful, just, you know, guessing. I'm saying that based on the authority of Scripture in Romans 8 that we we mentioned. Our moments of greatest despair God can use for great, great blessing. And he is. Let's pray. Our Father, compared to you, we are like Labradors with wagging tails, joyful in your presence, and yet ignorant, completely ignorant of all that you know. Give us the simple faith that trusts you, that doesn't have to understand it all, but rather that knows that you understand it all that doesn't understand the workings of your great mind, but gives us, but, but we have enough to worship you and the great wisdom of who you are. Thank you for this story that we read here, Joseph's life, Jacob's life, these brothers, that you have transformed their life through great tragedy to bring about a great good. Thank you for the promise in your word that you're doing the same thing in our lives. And would you give us the strength and the faith to make it more than a mere intellectual thought, but to make it practice where we, in the midst of our struggle, can worship you because we know that you are working all things for good. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Y'all have a blessed week. Uh, Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.